We are still in the very, very early days of crypto. That means the potential upside is enormous, but it also means we're still in the Wild West era. That's why Real Vision is launching the Crypto Academy to stand for quality in an arena that's full of noise. To find out what we're doing and be one of only 1,969 people who will get lifetime access, yes, lifetime access, rather than having to pay an annual subscription, visit realvision.com slash learning crypto. That's realvision.com slash learning crypto. Click on the link in the description. Higher forever. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Andy Constant, CEO of Dance Spring Advisor. Hi, Andy. Great to have you back with us. Hey, May. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. So um, interesting action today. Earnings very much in focus. We saw Alphabet down 9.5%, big drop for that stock after disappointing after the close Tuesday. And it seems like that really set the tone for U.S. stocks. We had a sell-off across the board. Uh, the NASDAQ down, taking the brunt of it really, down almost 2.5%. S&P down about 1.5%. Dow down a third. We had the VIX up uh, 7% or so. Treasury yields kind of hovering around that 5%. So, you know, what's top of mind for you as you look across the macro landscape right now? Well, clearly earnings are very important for um, this particular period. You know, you always have idiosyncratic risk that aren't macro, that isn't macro. But it's also important to sort of understand where, uh, how these, these earnings fit in and what the market reactions are to get a, an understanding of what's happening more on the macro side. So what do you so what, what what do you make of it? I mean, we're in the thick of it now. We're starting to get the big names, especially these big tech names, and then they, of course, have been leaders. And it seems like, you know, those who missed are really getting punished. Um, and there is some upside for those who do better, but but it seems like it's a little bit more skewed to the downside. I don't know. Is that what you're seeing? And do you see more downside risk from here? I mean, yeah, how? No, and I think the most interesting thing about earnings is, you know, we're going to print. I don't I don't know what'll come out tomorrow, but we're going to print four, four and a half, maybe even five percent um, real GDP for um, Q3. So earnings are going to be have been, and are going to be fantastic. You know, Google's earnings were very strong. Um, American Express last Friday's, uh, Friday, yeah, I think it was Friday, were very strong. And what I found interesting is the aftermarket reaction to strong earnings, which is consistent with what I think is happening, which is um, earnings expectations are uh, extrapolating what is what has been a very strong real GDP with you know, inflation still running well above target. And that flows through to great top line and de and excellent earnings. Um, so I think people have extrapolated that. And if you look at earnings expectations for uh, next year and the year forward, it's still 12% annualized growth, which is extremely hot earnings. And so expectations are very, very high. And then you have the bond market sort of cutting into valuations by uh, you know having higher yields which impacts multiples and yeah. so that combination of things means I think we're going to continue to get some um, good or great good to great earnings with um, mediocre to poor uh, market reaction 
Yeah, well, this was the worry all along, isn't it? I mean, you just hear people say it's priced in, but I mean, that has been the concern that so much of that strength, even though the numbers are really good, is already kind of baked into the price. Does it feel that way or is there some other dynamic going on? Yeah, so, um, you know, I wrote the script for how we get to inflation um, finally being uh, well and truly dead. And that ultimately leads to weaker demand and lower earnings, but we're not seeing lower earnings at all. So obviously some of the earnings are priced in to continue to be strong, but there's no reason why they shouldn't be until the economy actually starts to roll over. And the economy won't roll over until um, what I think is happening, which is quantitative tightening does its work um, by um, creating a bear steepener and having hot, um, long-term interest rates rise, hitting multiples, that multiple hit then results in a wealth effect. Everybody's losing money, no matter what asset you owned for the last three months, you're losing money. Even gold is only up you know, a few ticks. Um, and so everyone's losing money and that'll cut demand from the wealth effect standpoint. And then eventually you would think it would cut through, flow through to earnings but you have this other pressure, which is still strong fiscal. And so, you know, it's not certain that equities are overpriced, but if they are, bonds still need to have much higher yields. Wow, you just hit on everything <laughs> everything on my wish list to talk about. So let's break it down a little bit. Let's stick with stocks for the moment. So um, and what you just said, it really explains, I think, why everyone keeps going back to bonds being a driver here. But when we're looking at, equities. Um, when we've seen these big tech names, let's keep it a little shorter term here. So we saw, as I mentioned, the big decline in Alphabet, Google, um, and we've got some of the big earnings coming in. When we've seen a decline like this in tech names before some of the Magnificent Seven, if you will, buyers have come in. You know, we've seen people say, oh, wow, you know, Google, even, even I'm looking at it today and I was like, wow, it's down nine and a half percent. You know, we're just kind of all programmed to think like that. And the buyers have come in, even when people were worried about this before we saw them rebound and it surprised some people, some people weren't in the trade. Does it feel different this time or is there a possibility we once again see that? Well, um, I don't know, really. That's, um, you know, I'm not an individual stock guy, but mm. I do think that um, the S&P 500 as a group is doing awful. And there are a lot of stocks that are a lot cheaper than the Magnificent Seven. And so it com comes down, by the way, Meta looks like it just missed. Um, the, um, it seems like the um, overall market is so weak that you have to be comfortable going into this very narrow set. And that very narrow set has been um, driven principally by AI. Um, mm -hmm. and that story, you know, I think there's a lot to that story, but it's not clear when that story will create the value for shareholders and it's fairly well priced into markets. So, you know, I'm pretty pessimistic about the markets generally. I'm, I've been max short for about, um, since August 31st, uh, sorry, since, uh, July 31st. Um, and you know, I still fairly bearish, but it definitely has to come from some give back of the significant gains we've seen in the Magnificent Seven, and that may not be in the cards. Yeah, it's and, and I think you just touched on something that's been so difficult and why you've been seeing 
some people come back or that just gravitational pull to those stocks is that you do have this really compelling AI story. And by the way, it's not the only, let's layer in AI, quantum, throw some some other maybe, you know, uh, sort of VR in there, which I'm going to talk about in just a moment. You know, basically exponential age. And people have been trying to figure out what's real, what's hype. You have a lot of smart people saying, listen, we are on the cusp of something that is even bigger than the internet. And we feel that. So we've been trying to sort of do our best to stay on top of all these fast moving developments. Um, We've been doing a series this week as part of an exponential age, exponential technology series, really um, looking at some of the forces and where are they, what's happening in these sort of on the forefront of these um, different areas, pockets of tech, if you will. And David Matten spoke with Evan Hella about the developments in virtual reality as just one example. Let's have a listen to that and then we'll talk on the other side. You look at most VR today, people have been trying to get the cost down, trying to get the cost down, trying to make it affordable. And it's, it's led to an experience that's novel, but not something that people are coming back to. And so Apple was smart. They, they recognized that. And, and they recognized that was not going to be smart to go into a red ocean space and be another Me Too device in that lower end of the spectrum. So they wanted to go high end and make this really desirable, make it delightful. And um, they, so what they do, they reach into the future five years, hold the most insane technology forward, invented new technology. And yes, the, the price is high as a result, but they made the right trade-offs, right? Because they, they, they chose to be deficient on vectors that the progress of technology, I think will naturally take care of, right? Things like the price, things like the battery power, things like um, the tether to the battery pack, uh, things like the overall size, right? The arrow of progress is gonna dissolve those things and then they're gonna emerge as a result with having, uh, I think, captured the market and have better technology uh, in things that are harder to invent today. So. That's why I think they nailed it from a, a, a strategy perspective. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. That's just a tiny little snippet of that, but it's an amazing conversation with someone who's been at the forefront of this for a really long time. He's, by the way, a principal of spatial engineering at Amazon Web Services and He's an RV member, which is just another reminder of how awesome our community is. To watch the full interview, and I highly recommend you do, go to realvision.com. So Andy, um, you know this stuff we're all trying to sort through, right? Um, and we, we all feel it's powerful. We kind of get that AI. We saw in Microsoft's earnings, a net revenue of 13% on the back of Azure and some of the stuff they're they're doing with that. So we're, we're seeing it realized quickly, which is different. So that keeps pulling people in. What does it mean if the magnific- we don't see a, a pullback for the Magnificent Seven? Does it continue to sort of push us up into dangerously thin air if the breadth is that narrow? What does that mean for the year end as we come here? Because a lot of people are trying to figure out, do we see a rally? are we going to see seasonals kick in or is this going to be painful? And do we all need to try to preserve our capital before the end of the year? How are you thinking about that? Yeah. So I look at um, um, seasonals actually as a legitimate flow that's driven by tax shifts for people's portfolio and um, chasing for performance. 
And when I look at those factors, uh, in almost every year in which the stock market's up 10% or more, uh, you have a positive, um, a, a strongly positive, like stronger than it has been positive uh, last two months of the year. Uh, and that's um, very reliable. 30 out of 36 times in the last 100 years when you've been up 10%, only 36 times we've been up 10%, but in those They've all had a Santa effect. And so we're up 10%. And so it's right for people to think there's going to be a Santa effect. But what I think is fascinating this year is uh, the amount of stocks at trading at a loss is by far higher than any other time in which we're up 10%. Mm -hmm. And every bond that anyone purchased in the last year is down, is gonna have a capital loss. And so typically what happens is tap capital losses are very hard to find because in a 10% year, most things are up. Mm. So finding a capital loss is very hard to find. And so what investors, taxable investors do is they delay selling their gains until January. So they don't have to crystallize a capital gain. This year is very different. There are seven stocks. Well, there are really many hundred of st hundred stocks, but uh, only those seven have actually outperformed the S and P. All the other ones, all four hundred and ninety-three other ones, have underperformed the S and P. And two hundred and fifty of them are at a loss, and bond markets are at a loss. So there are capital losses galore. And so that allows people to, when you take a capital loss, you can carry it forward and um, use it for future capital gains to offset future capital gains. But it's also quite normal for you to say, wait, I have a capital loss. I'm going to take a capital gain, particularly in some of these high-flying stocks. So I think the tax purpose of these, uh, you know, the tax deferral of these magnificent seven is not going to happen. There's going to be active selling, um, or at least normal selling instead of this deferred selling. And so I think that'll keep the the ramping of those into year end out, uh, you know, um, muted. And then there's the performance chasing, and performance has been so spotty. Unless you own the passive index the dispersion of performance is very wide with lots of people down for the year. You see all these um, Princeton, Harvard, Yale, all reported down years for the years. Not that those are taxable institutions, but the breadth of the losses versus the people that were overweight Magnificent Seven is interesting in that, you know, when you have no incentive I mean, you always have incentive to make money for your investors, but at year end, the incentive changes between portfolio managers who are paid based on their performance um, annually, their, their incentive switches relative to their investor. And so they often ramp things that they can so that they can get better performance. And typically that's into the best performers. Um, the funny thing is that the reason why the best performers have, per have performed and why many have not done well because they haven't owned those is because of the 
hesitancy for people to buy into AI. If you look at NVIDIA and you don't buy into AI, and I think there's a significant portion of people that believe it's hype, just because it's up, I don't think you're going to likely chase that particular stock for performance because it's so antithetical to the reason why you haven't owned it for the whole year. Yeah. And so I'm concerned about performance chasing in that in that narrow group. And so if you don't have performance chasing and there's plenty of taxable losses to offset taxable gains, all the things that are typically drivers for that seasonal effect just don't exist this year. And so I've been saying Santa's dead for about a month now. And um, I think that's going to disappoint a lot of investors. I wouldn't be surprised at all if the S&P is unchanged for the year. Wow. That is a, such a compelling case you just made because this is something that you know not everyone digs into, but that dynamic, and you're right, this is not only is everyone holding on to bond losses, it's like the third year in a row this is happening, right? So it's it's a really different place than we've been. So it makes sense that those factors might have a different outcome. And I think your AI hesitancy is right on too. Um, and this is what's so interesting as we're doing all of these conversations. And by the way, weigh in if you're watching the content um, because these are people who are really well-placed, but they are, in some cases, technologists. And we we go back and forth between, okay, the technology is super exciting, but how quickly is it going to get there? And what does it mean to actually act be actionable on that, right? And so those are two different things. And are the best opportunities and values in the private market still? We talked to Ben Miller about this Friday. If you haven't seen that episode of The Daily Briefing, go back and watch that because he's focused on that and talking about that. So this is it's a really interesting dynamic and there are really, really divergent opinions. Um, and we're putting them all on, the skeptics as well as those who are who are really into it, but we've really all got to educate ourselves on that. It's so important. So let's let's hit the other two big, big issues that you talked to talked about rather or referenced um, bonds. So let's do bonds. And we we mentioned that higher forever because it's a nod to some of the research and questions that you've, you've been asking, which are really provocative. So bonds have been really dictating this idea that they're still um, knocking on 5% for the 10-year, but there seems to still be an assumption that it's a, only a matter of time before we see the economy weaken and that the Fed cuts rates. Everyone's pushing that timeline out, but it's still coming. That's why so many people have been sucked into the bond trade and then got their head handed to them because they've been trying to time that change. Do What do you mean by asking higher forever? Do you think that's coming? Is it just pushed out so it feels like we're waiting forever? How are you thinking about that? Yeah, so for about a year now, I've been on higher for longer island. And that's a place where the incredible fiscal stimulus and the um, the um, forces of deglobalization, which is creating things like the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act, um, and generating additional fiscal spending, along with a extremely tight labor market where wages are coming in strong and thus people have money to spend. Um, is creating a relatively strong, both real and nominal GDP environment. And so I've been, has, I haven't believed in this uh, recession idea for a long, long time. Um, and so 
so here we are. Um, now, finally, uh, we are starting to see long-term interest rates, which have really lagged short-term interest rates, um, catch up. Uh, you know, we had significant inversion between the 10-year and the two-year or the 10-year and the bills market um, for a long time. And a lot of people thought that was the indicator of a recession was a hot, heavy inversion. And that's just not true um, unless there's a credit crisis, which there's no sign of. We had a small little tempest in a teacup with a few banks, but Beyond that, there's been no credit crisis. So what you need to get to get a recession is to get jobs and assets down. Mm. And the first phase of getting assets down is raising interest rates, which the Fed has done. The second phase, which I observed in um, on July 31st, is that there needs to be a supply catalyst to transmit quantitative tightening to the bond market. And that came when the uh, Treasury announced that it was going to issue a significant amount of coupon treasuries in the second half of the year. And so we had this disinversion, uh, bear steepening. And that's taken a lot, you know, TLT, you know, one of the classics that everyone sort of retail plows into. Um, is uh, down 17% in the last two months. You know, there's a significant hit on long-term bonds. And equities are down, you know, call it 8% since then now. Matt Russell is down close to 17%, maybe 18 today. Um, and that's going to hit the wealth effect. And it's going to get companies starting to get pressure from their, sharehold their shareholders to make cuts and it's the cuts of employment that actually create a recession. And if you look at the jobs reports, we're nowhere near that. Mm. So I'm sure you've noticed in earnings statements, there's been virtually nothing about downsizing. You don't downsize after a 5% GDP um, quarter. You mm. don't downsize after record earnings. You downsize when your earnings are actually coming in because of weakening demand and your share price is falling. And I don't think that happens this quarter. And I think it the first time we'll start to see corporations reining in spending, reining in employment, cutting employment is not till February or, or, or um, you know, February earnings cycle. Um, and so my outlook is fairly a uh, strong economy, which is going to keep pressure on the bond market, um, but equities that already have priced fully in strong earnings. So mm. that's not a good uh, combination for the 60-40 portfolio, for sure. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Yeah. Oh, gosh. We've been really talking about the pain of that 60-40 portfolio. So do you just think that you do you ultimately think there's a recession? And if there is, do we finally see the Fed respond? Is that you mentioned before, you know, a bear steeper. Do you think that that the Fed will cut or or right. do you see something else happening? Because now we have this also issue of supply that's out there further complicating right. the bond market. Right. 
Yep. So here's where I think we go. We Stocks fall, bonds fall. We start seeing a little bit of weakening in the economy. Em, employment starts falling. At that stage, there are two places we can go. We can go into the new normal where the Fed and fiscal policy do stimulative, stimulative actions, um, cutting rates, potentially doing more asset purchases, um, spending uh, to offset the weakness in the economy. And that's not higher for longer. That's just the classic uh, response to that we've seen for the last 40 years when things get tough, the politicians print money and spend money. Um, and so that's a possible outcome. And that um, I think will take some more severe pain than we've experienced. But another outcome is the Fed and the um, uh, fiscal side don't respond, that they accept the fact that, and that will be dictated by whether inflation comes in or not. Mm. Um, if inflation doesn't come in, the central bank is not going to respond to a weakening economy quite as rapidly. It's not going to cut as much, if at all. Um, and that's what I call the higher forever situation. It's when you know, fiscal just does not is unwilling to get its house in order and slow the massive deficit increase, um, and thus inflation stays sticky. Employment may fall a little bit, but stays sticky, um, and the economy can run at higher rates for quite easily. And that's what we saw. You know, most of my career and pretty much all the time before 19, you know, 2000. Um, since then, it's been a very different world. Um, and since 2008, it's been a QE world. So it's possible that we veer off to a world, not this classic cycle where bad things happen, rates get cut, mm. but this cycle where bad things happen and rates don't get cut. Right. And, and so things, things are awful painful for, you know, for different patches depending on where you're sitting. So that that's a really, really interesting uh, thought exercise to go through because there are things. And so it, it, it brings to mind, um, and Chris just said hello to me. I had the pleasure of having, being at a dinner with one of our members earlier in the week. Hi, Chris. And he, he said something that has stayed with me and I've been really thinking about all week. And that is that the center of power, financial power has moved from New York to DC because of the fiscal situation now, um, because not only may you have inflation sort of handcuffing the Fed, but maybe bond vigilantes, right? We have all this issuance. Foreign buyers aren't buying as many U.S. treasuries. So if you suddenly are cutting the rates and they're not that interesting to the people and you've got all the supply coming, it's difficult. Layer on that, the fact that we're going into an election year, which we already know is going to be crazy because it took us four weeks to get a Speaker of the House. Um, and in fact, when it comes to the election, which is going to be contentious anyway, you try to slice it. Um, I, as our members know and our audience knows, I had the opportunity to sit down with Peter Zahan um, more than a week ago, um, and we discussed the whole geopolitical landscape, but also the U.S. election. Let's listen to a quick clip of that. 
Sure. Well, I'm not worried about the next election. I'm pretty confident that Trump is going to face a landslide defeat. We can go into the logic of that if later if you want to. Yes, we will. But Okay, so a couple things. Number one, uh, he has full control over the Republican Party apparatus, and I have no doubt that he'll get the nomination. I mean, he, he could... He could campaign from prison where he's been convicted of 90 felonies, which is how many there are now. <laughs> uh, and he could live stream the abortion of his underage illegal migrant un uh, trans lover, and he would still get the nomination. All right. I'm sure that got some hackles up, but uh, certainly always thought provoking to sit down with Peter. He's some really interesting thoughts about why he has that very contrary view about how this is going to play out. But again, we touched on U.S. elections, on obviously the situation in the Middle East, on China as always. Um, and and it's, it's always really thought provoking. And Ukraine, why Ukraine is really still front and center on his radar. I um, mean, it's a fascinating conversation. And especially if you think about how uh, not only the election is going to play out, but what uh, topics they're going to weigh on, because there's a lot of spending needs. And we talked about this. Can the U.S. afford all this? You know, how what are the priorities going to be? But Andy, it all comes down to some kind of spending, right? It's hard to see how anyone's going to run for election by saying, I'm going to raise taxes. I'm going to cut fiscal spending. I'm going to get the deficit under control. That is not going to happen. And so you've got this situation where that fiscal side is going to create problems for monetary policy, isn't it? Sure. You know, it's there's you know, they're talking about this uh, continuing resolution, which deals with 12 of the discretionary budgets. Um, are we going to cut the military? Are we going to do something with um, entitlements? No. You know, are we going to be able to our interest rates going to fall rapidly enough to reduce our interest costs? Probably not. So. There's just not that much wiggle room. They can argue. I always like to think of the two parties as arguing over how to slice the pie, not how to make the pie bigger, because there's uh, there's a bipartisanship in how to make the pie bigger. You run a deficit, whether yeah. that's by not taxing enough or spending too much, you run a deficit. And that's a bipartisan action, and I expect it to continue. Um, Austerity is very hard to run on. Yeah, it's usually shoved down throats. It's not, nobody runs on that. Um, but, you know, we're getting to a point where this is all going to get terribly, terribly difficult um, and really important. Um, and it's going to be, it's, it's going to be tough. So it's, and it's going to have massive impacts on the, uh, on, on the macroeconomic environment. Um, by the way, for the Peter interview, if you have not been able to check it out, of course, you can find it on the platform. It's also going to auto roll out of this. Um, so you can find it right here where we live um, if you're if you're joining us on YouTube as well. Um, so by all means, um, weigh in. We want to hear your thoughts on all of what he had to say um, because we're going to have to continue to talk about all of these things. So Andy, um, we have uh, a lot of questions. I'm, we're not going to get to to many of them, but I think I want to ask Doug's, um, which is, are there any places to make money at the end of the year? Um, and Lena also asking, is there any place to hide? I think people are struggling with both of those things. Like, is there opportunity based on the difficulties you just talked about? And I think there's always opportunity. And or if you're if capital preservation is your jam, you know, what do you need to be be cognizant of? How are you thinking about that? Yeah, so I track a portfolio of um, I track the 6040 and I track other diversified portfolios carefully. 
Um, I have one of my own. Um, and those portfolios are much better value than they've been in a long, long time. So the question that really is coming to mind for me is if you have cash on the sidelines, if you are in T-bills, if you're in money market funds, it's becoming interesting where it hasn't been for many, many months to begin to build some beta portfolios for long-term holdings. Um, and so to do that, I would start thinking, as I said, I'm fairly negative on equities, but you want to have some balance anyway. Um, I think the thing that I think is the place to hide is in the five-year tip, inflation protected, high real yield. And to me, that's the place to hide. It's gets cash-like at some basic level, um, not a lot of duration. That's my favorite place to hide. But I think you can start layering in, if you've been in cash for a long time, you can start beginning to add to uh, an, a, a balanced asset portfolio. Um, I wouldn't be anywhere near 100% allocated, but you know, starting to add makes sense to me. Um, for alpha, for market timing, there's always an opportunity, both on the long side and the short side. Right now, I think the most obvious opportunity is short equities. Um, I think we're coming to a, and a, this is controversial, but I think we're coming to a point where um, being short the dollar and long the European currencies is a, is a decent opportunity. Hmm. Um, gold has incredible, rallied incredibly, I think on war tension, which is really the only asset that has a, what I would call a war premium built into it right now. Um, and so I'd be a little cautious about chasing gold. Um, I don't do crypto, so I won't, wouldn't, won't comment on that. Uh, but it has similar properties. I think it's being, acting like digital gold more than ever before. Mm. Um, which I think is just an interesting thing. Yeah. Um, and um, in terms of long equities, it's a, it's it's tough. I would say the values are in Europe. They seem to always be in Europe, but I think never more so than now. Um, I think that covers it. Yeah, it's yeah, not, it certainly not does. A place to loop to make money, but. Being long or being short, if you're capable of market timing, which is extremely difficult and most people aren't, um, there's always some opportunity. Yeah, that's great stuff. That's great stuff. And and I probably touched on something for everyone in there, you know, depending on where their portfolio is sitting. Andy, um, your research is always top-notch, such interesting thoughts, both short-term and bigger picture for us to really be thinking about as we see these events play out over the next few weeks. So thank you so much for being with us, as always. Thanks, Maggie. Good to be here. Uh, and as I said, we've got a lot of stuff coming up. Um, you can check out Peter right after this if you can stick around for it. If not, you can find it here. And don't forget, we have a RAL AMA at the end of the week. Um, and as usual, sometimes RAL has differing views um, from a lot of the folks who are coming on or all of these things we'll be able to tease apart with him as well as all the great content from this exponential um, content series we have going on right now. So be sure you check it all out. Thanks, everybody. We'll look forward to seeing you tomorrow. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there. We are still in the very, very early days of crypto. That means the potential upside is enormous. But it also means we're still in the Wild West era. That's why Real Vision is launching the Crypto Academy. 
to stand for quality in an arena that's full of noise. To find out what we're doing and be one of only 1,969 people who will get lifetime access, yes, lifetime access, rather than having to pay an annual subscription, visit realvision.com slash learning crypto. That's realvision.com slash learning crypto. Click on the link in the description.